The Boundless Pursuit Podcast is proudly sponsored by Built Wild DNA. Fuel your day on the water in a constructive and healthy way. Energy and fitness supplements designed with the outdoorsman in mind. Get your physicality in line with your mentality and maximize your time on the water. Use promo code BOUNDLESSPURSUIT for 10% off of your next order at BuiltWildDNA.com. Welcome to Boundless Pursuit, a weekly podcast providing motivation, entertainment, and education to anglers and outdoorsmen. I hope that the stories you'll find here will encourage you to chase your passion more fervently, to open your mind to new opportunities and perspectives. Your engagement and feedback is critical to the growth of this show, and I would love to hear your suggestions on topics or potential guests. You can reach me at boundlesspursuitfishing at gmail.com or at my website, www.boundless-pursuit.com. That's where you'll find all related articles, media, and merchandise. Please remember, the show will gain traction from your support. Be sure to like, comment, and share this podcast to your friends and connections. I'm your host, David Graham. Now let's get on to today's episode. All right, I'm very excited for this one today because we're getting out of the local waters and we're talking major bucket list stuff. And the chances are, if you've seen any high quality photos or video of gigantic peacock bass caught deep in the jungles or the gnarly, wild looking fanged payara fish, you've probably seen the page or content provided by Fish Columbia. And today's guest is the man behind Fish Columbia, Alberto Mejia. And man, I got so excited knowing that Alberto was coming onto this podcast because this is a destination in Colombia that I have dreamt of going to. And in due time, I know it's going to happen. Fish Columbia specializes in adventure fishing trips for massive peacock bass in excess of 20 pounds, giant payara, and various unique species of catfish some of which can grow to colossal size. And its operations in the Orinoco River system and remote Colombian jungle have attracted visits from some of the most recognizable anglers on Earth, including one former podcast guest, Larry Walker. It's a trip and a destination that Larry has gone on many, many times, even with his buddy Jimmy Houston. And Fish Columbia offers the adventurous angler opportunities to catch spectacular fish on fly or conventional gear. And on the flip side of the freshwater jungle fishing opportunities is the insane saltwater fishing. Popping, jigging, fly fishing, deep dropping in world-class locations for fish like tubera snappers, jacks, sailfish, yellowfin tuna, roosterfish, and so much more. And what's incredible is you're doing this fishing with some of the most pristine wilderness around you. From the jungle landscapes to the various kinds of bird, mammals, reptiles, just the ambient environment around you, I think is what makes this experience as a whole seem so incredible. And honestly, I think on a global scale, Fish Columbia has some of the most incredible opportunities to catch dream fish. Alberto's just a young guy who visualized a dream career and he made it happen. And his dream spawned the dream of countless anglers from all over the world seeking to catch some of the most recognized and unheard of sport fish on the planet. I'm just honored and excited to get this guy on here. This is Alberto Mejia of Fish Columbia. 
like action. But uh, <laughs> all right, man. Well, Alberto, I'm glad that I got you on here. I was like, I was like worried that I lost you a couple of days ago because you run an operation in Colombia, in Fish Colombia, that uh, is is one of my dream like locations, and I think a lot of people would agree with it. But uh, I first stumbled across Fish Columbia and that now, I guess, sort of like iconic logo of the peacock bass years ago, a few years ago, maybe like, I don't even know, five or six years ago, uh, playing on YouTube, just looking up peacock bass, like the big peacock bass. And I saw that Stu Walker video. And at the very end or maybe the very beginning, they put the Fish Columbia logo up on the screen. I was like, all right, what is, what is this? Like, what is, is this the place that he went? I got to know more because the video is phenomenal. The fish are incredible. Every element of the experience looked like, like everything I would ever want as an adventure loving angler. And then I stumbled across fish Columbia and you're kind of like the guy behind that. But, um, I don't know, man, just like, like, tell me how this, all this came to be. Are you, is this something that you built yourself? Yep. So Fish Columbia started out uh, nine years ago or or even before that, I was um, exploring all these really wild places in Colombia. First, initially in the jungles for peacock bass and pajara and catfish. And, uh, you know, it was my passion. I loved doing it. I was studying uh, engineering simultaneously, but I started posting all that on social media and there was really no no one offering any uh, remote fishing expeditions to the jungles of Colombia at that time. So I got, I got contacted by a few people from, uh, initially it was from South Africa and Japan. And I had, uh, you know, they're like, I want to come and do that. And I was like, well, let's go. And then we can split the cost. And, uh, that's how it started. And the, the next year it was, you know, I was doing that full time. And, uh, from there pretty much simultaneously, I started doing trips to the Pacific ocean. And uh, a couple of years later, I got my first boat, the Biscocho, and it's, it's grown a lot from there. Right now we have three freshwater lodges and a saltwater lodge in the North Pacific Ocean, close to the Panama border. And uh, we specialize in in taking people to the most remote places in Colombia. And just last year we actually changed completely our approach to to our business. And um, you know, we, in Colombia is an area where the government doesn't really do much for conservation. The it is the fisheries aren't really managed at all. So, you know, all this life, all my life, I've been, you know, struggling with that because, you know, not, they re- really don't care. So I, start, I decided that we could do a better job ourselves, um, you know, as a private company taking care of these places. So right now we're, the, we're um, doing all scientific fishing. So we have biologists doing programs, uh, letting us know what indicators we need to collect. Uh, for instance, getting genetic samples from all the yellowfin tuna we catch to know where the populations are traveling from, what size populations they are, and uh, that way generating valuable information for being able to manage these fisheries uh, in the short, long, and uh, medium, and long term. So you know, right now, as you know, getting a certain backlash. So that uh, that backlash that fishing's got, you know, because of the you know very radical. Let's not say conservation. It's more like I'm environmentalist. It's a way to to make the whole world, even people who don't fish, understand the importance of sport fishing for these really remote areas to be able to take care of them, to be able to protect them from mining, logging, commercial fishing, and just um, you know, in general, all these these 
things they take away from fishing. And from, you know, we love conservation. Most people don't understand. They've never been to these places, but they can understand the importance of, you know, these studies, the importance of this information, the importance of a, a biologist speaking on our behalf, on behalf of fishing, saying how important it is to be able to take care of these, you know, these places. So that's Fish Columbia right now. Oh, that's awesome. That Well, that was a topic that I was, you know, I have listed to bring up. Obviously, I wanted to touch on maybe a little bit later, but I will guess I'll kind of touch on it now just based on what you're bringing up, because I had read the news like headlines. And even it, it made news here, like in the States, that uh, that Columbia was like kicking around the idea and the Supreme Court was talking about putting an outright ban on sport fishing. And I'm like, wow, like, you know, you've never really hear about that. It's something we always like fear as anglers. Like, will there ever come a day where this is considered animal cruelty and gets outlawed and it gets banished? And I saw where that had been talked about in Colombia. And I remember as soon as I read that, like you were the first person I thought of. I'm like, holy crap. I'm like, there's people down there where this is like their livelihood. Like this is their business. Like this is, this is generating employment opportunities for people. And it's like, you know, now they're talking about potentially like shutting it down. And then like after I saw that, like, I'd always wondered like, well, you're, you're still operating. Like y'all are still running trips. So what is the status of that? Is it still like a, a, a fight that's ongoing or. Yeah. So really, um, you know, initially when the, when they, when that came out, uh, you know, it was, pretty much a, a very radical environmental movement saying that, you know, it's documented that sport fishing can cause just as much harm as, as, com as commercial fishing and just a bunch of nonsense. Um, so they initially the Supreme court, uh, approved the ban or the prohibition of recreational fishing or so what that, what that means is that you're not allowed to go fishing with the sole intent of catching a fish to let it go. So what they're doing is banning one of the reasons why you would go fishing, not the act of fishing at all. So if you're going fishing because you want to catch a yellowfin for dinner and you happen to catch a sailfish or that tuna is just too big, that's still legal to, it's, no one's saying it's illegal to release a fish. Because right now, even the commercial guys, if they catch a species that's not allowed, they have to release it. What they're saying is that you can't fish for fun. So obviously that's, first of all, it's impossible to, to enforce. Second of all, you know, like, uh, there's so much, um, the communities, the indigenous communies, the African-American communities in the Pacific Ocean, and just in general, there was a general outcry even from the scientists saying how retarded of a decision it was. So there's, it's kind of being, um, you know, they're backing, backing away from it, but mm -hmm. um, if they were to apply that. That's actually already exists in, in, um, in Germany and several countries in Europe where you're not even allowed to release a fish. But I have a German friend that says, you know, trout are slippery. So. <laughs> right. So, I yeah. So that's interesting how you say it's it's not if it's if so long as it's the sole if the sole purpose is catching and release and enjoying it, then that should be banished. So I would think and it sounds like I mean, oh. if you just if you just add a layer of scientific study or conservation. What's Correct. That? So that's exactly what we did. We we did a scientific study or a, a project with biologists where they formulated the like the actual research paper for creating the first scientific research center on the Columbia Pacific Ocean. And we're currently replicating that for our freshwater operations. We've already had biologists down and we're actually are generating very, very important scientific data that 
was really needed to be able to take care of these fisheries because we really don't know. We have they have the government has no control. They don't know absolutely at all what populations of what species are here, what time of year, or control on the commercial side. So it was critical that we did this. And on the other hand, it um it's great for marketing. Of course, I would rather spend my money with the guy who's doing something for conservation versus the other guy. Right. And third, it totally got us around the law and creating. It's also creating barriers between our company and all the other, you know, companies on, an, on a global scale, you know, different differentiating our company as, you know, leader in conservation. Yeah. Oh, that's interesting. Cause it's funny. Cause like here in Florida where I live, I mean, everybody knows like the, the overwhelming majority of like, uh, like population statistics and length weight data surveys and, and just all the information that like the FWC, which is Florida's fish and wildlife, conservation agency i mean the overwhelming majority of their data comes from surveys that they take at the boat ramps i mean i see these guys almost every time i go out and i'm coming back in with my boat you'll have a guy standing there with a marked fwc truck and a clipboard and he's just collecting data like how many fish did you catch what species did you catch can we take a look at them can we take measurements because it's such a valuable like resource for data collection is recreational anglers so it just seems like a silly way to, I don't know, cut cut your opportunities to collect that data. But it's good that you're throwing that back at them because it's it's kind of common sense stuff. And it's a battle that yeah. if you're smart with, you really can't lose. Yeah. So we contacted uh, several, um, you know, private um, universities and, and uh, investigators that are working with um, fisheries in Ecuador and Mexico. And they were, you know, super excited to have this opportunity. This, this for them was a golden opportunity because we have boats on the water every day of the year, all year round, gathering valuable information that they would never be able to gather because no one has the money to run a boat 50 miles offshore every day of the year. While we're seeing crazy stuff that no one's ever documented on this coastline. And now for them, it was, uh, you know, free. So they're, they were stoked to, to be part of the project. And, uh, we hope to be able to gather some very, very important information to um, on the migratory paths, on the you know the weather changes, the the Nino, you know, all, all the currents mm -hmm. and the uh, temperatures, and and really be able to influence how they take decisions. Yeah. The the medium term goal is to expand, at least for our Pacific operation, is to expand the SIPA, which is the exclusive artisanal fishing zone that was created ten years ago, and it protects the first four miles of the coast from all kinds of commercial fishing. And by gathering information, we're going to be able to expand that to 20 or 30 miles where there's no commercial fishing of any sort. Oh, that's cool. Okay. Well, the other side of that, that I'm always wondering too, like, especially with regards to shutting something down and, um, and forgive my ignorance, but I mean, you know, I'm, I'm going to be asking questions also on, on behalf of a lot of people who are curious about any kind of like ecotourism or tourism in general in Colombia. I can't think of, I mean, what are, aside from fishing, what are the main, I mean, is Colombia getting a lot of international travel and tourism that's boosting yeah, the economy uh, anyway, or? Colombia right now, tourism is, is becoming one of the most um, biggest uh, things right now for, for generating employment and for, for upcoming companies. Um, there's a lot of tourism to see like the different cities, the country, the nightlife, the wildlife. Colombia is the first country in the world in, in a number of bird species, butterfly species, plants, the second in the world in biodiversity. 
like the fourth in, in, uh, in species of fish. So a lot of people are coming for bird watching, for ecotourism, for seeing the countryside. It's only a two and a half, three hour flight from several U.S. cities. Yeah. Very convenient trip to do. Um, safe country. And it's becoming very, very, very big tourism right now. That's good because I'd wondered if they'd like sort of weighed what the economic, you know, win or loss would be of shutting down sport fishing because I know that's got to so, draw a massive boost in uh, tourism. They didn't uh, look at any studies. They didn't look at any information. They just looked at how how they they thought it was, you know, cruel and their feelings and and that's how it started. But they they've had a lot of backlash because like ind- indigenous communities. Uh, like uh, sued the law because it's it's going against their their right to to work. It's going against their their traditions. So, mm. like for instance, same deal happened with bullfighting ten years ago, and right now it's one hundred percent legal. You know, it's obviously a legal battle, and it's definitely um, a foreshadowing of what's going to be happening soon in a lot of countries. But but it's definitely not a battle that anyone's willing to to lose. And then even even the worst case scenario really isn't that bad, which is like what they have in Germany, you know. Yeah. Well, you mentioned you mentioned one other thing. This is backtracking a little bit into to, into what you were saying, but uh, you know, it's it, it when people take these, I don't know, like life risks. You know, you mentioned that you were studying. You were you were in school. You had a, a like life trajectory that was heading towards a career in engineering, <laughs> where there's like going to be good money in in most cases most scenarios but uh you ventured off that course to go towards fishing and like so i when i heard that i'm like oh okay i gotta know more about that because you know for some people i think that's a tough decision to make you know maybe mom and dad like what do you think you're doing like this this is where the money at this is where your education's at this is where whatever's at you want to go fishing like what are you talking about was that a decision that you struggled with i mean did is this something you thought like holy cow like this is not real to be honest i've always taken risks risks lightly you know i've always i've never been scared to take a risk mm-hmm. and uh yeah failure as a possibility in anything i've ever done in life so i just always saw it like a done deal yeah let's just that was one i had to ask about because like man that is you know some people may struggle or, or, with that yeah it's, it's more important to be happy than to be important and i always yep. knew that so I, you know, I love my life. Wouldn't change my life. So I'm pretty happy that, um, you know, pretty sure it was. It would have been easy to fail somewhere along the line, but you can always keep trying and get it done. Right. And then you yourself, I mean, fishing is just something you were already doing before you started all this anyway. I mean, this was an, an inherent interest and passion of yours. I, I mean. Yeah, and, yeah I think. I was lucky. I was I was still in college, and I didn't really have too many responsibilities, and I was able to take the the risk more lightheartedly. But um, but yeah, I was already fishing. I would have. I was spending all my money fishing, anyways. So yeah. <laughs> oh man. Well, so I want to talk about you know obviously my first impression of Fish Columbia was the peacock bass thing. And then over time, obviously, I learned there's there's so much more to the operations you're running than just that fish. But it's kind of like, you know, it's the focal point almost of the brand because it's your logo. But when I think peacock bass, you know, a lot of people don't realize, myself included, just how many different kinds 
of peacock bass or i mean we've got them here in florida but it's nothing like what y'all have there and correct me if i'm wrong but do y'all have i mean they're so big like they're so big in the rivers that you're operating on are these the biggest variant of peacock bass like what species do y'all have what's the top end size what are some of the bigger ones that you've seen pulled from your operations tell me a little bit about the fishery itself for peacock bass yeah so worldwide there's i can't recall right now officially the exact number of species that's been cl classified but it's far from the actual number of species that exist mm -hmm. up to a few years ago there was only three or four species classified now i believe it's something like seven or eight but there's really been very few of if any genetic studies done on a lot of the populations of peacock bass which is something we're going to be starting to do because I believe that in, even in the venues that we fish, there's very important differences between the, the Temensis, which is a large species of peacock bass that we catch. But yeah, this, the large species, the one that's very sought after that grows to 30 pounds is the, the Temensis. Cicla Temensis is a scientific name. They actually tried to um, plant them in Florida in the 80s and 90s, I think it was, but they can't survive the cold front. So they all died away. Um, but those, yeah, they grow to 30 pounds. They're extremely aggressive species of fish made. It was like, it was designed by sport fishermen for sport fishermen. Uh, they grow really quick. They're very numerous where they're found. They're very aggressive. They can be caught several times. Um, they spawn and breed very fast. They, they, um, they grow quickly. They're the dominant, uh, species of predator in the lowland rivers where they're found. So they're only found in lowland rivers, not rivers flowing down from the mountains. Um, so they're very sediment low rivers that where they have to be. Um, and uh, the world record right now is 29 pounds. We've caught species uh, specimens in our operations over 26. And um, yeah, peacock bass are definitely the probably the centerpiece of the fishing in the jungles of Colombia. But definitely more and more we've grown or the interest for Pajara has grown to where I would say right now, it's almost as big of a draw mm -hmm. for people coming, there, which that's something that we have that been, we've changed through our social media because no one really knew what a Pajara was, you know, seven or eight years ago. But, um, but yeah, peacock bass are insane. We catch three different species um, or four different species in our destinations. They are all beautiful. They're all great sport. The large species, you know, gets really big, so it's and it's extremely strong. It fights like a saltwater fish, so that's why it's so sought after. But really, what's special about the peacock bass is where they're found. So we're really going really far, really remote places where not even Colombians go because it's it takes so much effort to get there. So you you end up seeing some of the most beautiful remote places in the world that still exist that are completely conserved where indigenous communities live like they lived 500 years ago. And that's managed to also take care of these places because if there wasn't someone there paying money to like some tourists paying money for us to employ these people, for us to pay indigenous fees, they would be killing the fish or they would be mining or they would be netting commercially or, or logging because they have to live off something. So right. we've the places where sport fishing gets in time are places that are protected forever as long as sport fishing still there yeah that's good because I, I was wondering too like when you mentioned earlier that it had started with you know some guys had contacted you from i don't even remember where you said overseas people like hey and i'm interested in coming to 
catch these fish. Were you already like what the early trips that you were taking people on? Who who was the guide? You yourself? I mean, it's like you don't just jump yep. into and so where was, were you uh, taking I was, them? <laughs> uh I was out for the first four or five years, I was the only employee in the company pretty much, except for like the people I would hire in the on site. Mm-hmm. But uh initially yeah, I was I was the only guide. I still guide. I don't do it full time. I guide one or two weeks out of the month now. But um, because I I'm, I do all the sales, so I have to be in, with contact to be able to keep you know people coming down. But uh, but yeah, initially I was the sole guide of the company and photographer and marketing and everything. Sheesh, that's crazy. This is, I always wonder how these things get started, especially when you go somewhere so remote. Because you have to have certain resources to make it through, but um, but yeah, that's just nuts. But the other thing I'm wondering though is like you're right, it's it's such a rem- it's such a marketable species of fish, just because like I mean they're big, it's a beautiful looking fish, but then there people call them peacock bass, and I was just wondering, is there like a is there a local name that people I don't know indigenous to there call them because it's like it's not a it's not a bass, but it's like they're all often referred to as a bass. And I don't know if that's for marketability reasons or, or what, but um, I mean, I, I, they're actually not bass, but cichlids. Right. But they're Colombia referred to as pavon, which means um, a peacock, like the bird, or mm-hmm. a turkey, species of turkey. Um, and then, you know, throughout their range in different countries, they have different names. But um, but yeah, they they're they're called also peacock in Spanish, and then the bass name was given given to it by the first people who fished for them in the seventies and sixties, uh, from you know the states. Yeah. <laughs> well, it, it, and I always wonder that too. It's like the guys that I I don't know the locals. I mean, do they hold the fish in the same regard, or is like what the hell is everybody so excited about this fish for? It's just it's always oh. funny how that works in every different part of the world. The people that live. The that's actually a great question because the locals in areas where sport fishing doesn't exist treat peacock bass like a trash fish (laughs) i knew it they you know they catch one they'll give it to their their hogs or something or (laughs) they will eat but they don't really like it yeah Uh, areas where sport fishing is a thing they obviously you know it's their only source of income and they want them to be alive so people take extreme measures to make sure that people don't kill their bass to make sure Mm -hmm. no one's netting uh, for instance, in some of the indigenous reservations where we work, if 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 uh, the community finds out that someone killed a, a big peacock bass over ten pounds, like the natives, they won't let that native be a, a fishing guide for the season. Ah, okay. So taking taking uh, sport fishing has has changed their mentality in that regards to in regards to the peacock bass. That's funny because, you know, we mentioned a little bit before we started recording, like you know, kind of the direction I'm going with the podcast and some of my motivations behind doing it. And we see a lot of that here in the, in, in the, in the States with species of fish we have here in our backyard that ironically, a lot of our most, you know, sporty species we have here, the ones that get the biggest, the fastest, the strongest, the most unique for whatever reason, the folks that are most local to those areas, a lot of the times they end up being considered a trash fish. And I'm like, what is with that? Like our alligator gar is the same way. And yet on a global scale, it's, it's a very, like it, it draws a lot of interest from international English because it's freaking gigantic. 
it's an awe-inspiring animal. I mean, it's a very unique thing. Um, and then so, and obviously with fancy shows like River Monsters and things like that, it's it's now it's its perception has started to change even here. But it's just it's funny you mentioned that that it's <laughs> kind of been considered a uh, or historically may have been considered a trash fish. But yeah, I think uh, obviously rebranding the rebranding or the renaming or just cat- calling it a a peacock bass is going to bring in a lot of interest from our guys. And I guess notably people like um, Jimmy Houston, I've seen him out there quite a bit. He was one of the, one of the guys that I think was really putting his footprint there early with uh, putting these fish on the map, just from the perspective of a bass guy. Cause Jimmy Houston is like, you know, he's like the bass guy. He's like a largemouth bass guy. And then, and obviously guys like my buddy, Larry Walker, who's been on, on the show. And I know they come down there and fish with you. It seems like quite often, um, but it's been instrumental in probably getting the American clientele interested, but, um, just real interesting stuff, but the fishing, the nature of the fishing is what kind of interests me too. I, I always wonder because it looks very physical the, all the videos that I watch, it looks like, you know, you're working and maybe there's a lot of fish, but like excuse me, something flew in my eyeball. <laughs> I'm on my back porch here in Florida. So like wildlife is an element to these podcasts. Something just flew in my eye. But I watch these videos where the, like, you know, the lures that they're throwing, like these big wood choppers and they're just like chop, chop, chop. It's like, it seems like a very physically demanding style of fishing. But tell me a little bit about just the nature of the fishing. There's more like hunting. Are y'all using bait? Or are you exclusively using lures? Is that a, is it is it sight fishing or is it just casting and casting and casting? Very much like hunting. So it's a bit of everything, honestly. Uh, we we sight cast for the fish on the banks. We blind cast lures for them areas that look good. We fish a lot of seams like you would for trout or salmon, where fish would hold. Uh, we fish mostly for peacock bass and pajara. We fish only artificials and fly fishing. But we also do a lot of bait fishing for catfish, for haku, for matrinsa, even for pajar and peacock sometimes, and for saltwater, of course, for a lot of species of bait. So, yeah, it's a very, very like diverse type of fishing. We find, you know, even in the freshwater, opportunities for jigging like you would for for walleye, you know, all, all kinds of different style, style of fishing. So it's very diverse in that regards. Um, we have a lot of people come to fly fish that want to focus on on sight casting. So we look for the, for those scenarios. It just depends on you know what they're what gear they're using, what species they want to catch. But there's an opportunity for for all all the type of fishing that you mentioned. Yeah, yeah. I was just thinking like I, every time I watch the videos, I'm like, man, this does not look like it's necessarily for the faint of heart. Like it looks like people who who have the ambition to come down there and make a trip they need to be realistic about you know the physicality of of the fishing that it's not just coming in maybe some of it is a little bit relaxing but i don't know if you uh it's physical i mean you're moving you're casting you're moving uh you're on the, you're on the water for 11 hours a day in the sun but um that being said you know a lot of our clients are you know over 65 70 years old mm-hmm. so i mean I always say if you can deal with the Florida heat, you know, that's about the worst part of the trip, you know, is the heat and the humidity. But, you know, if you you fish as hard as you want to fish. Yeah. Well, I, I say that, but, you know, guys like Larry Walker who are in their 70s, he's like an outlier because that guy is like a freak of nature, like a physical, like anomaly. The fact that he can fish as hard as he does at his age, it's it's incredible. 
Um, <laughs> that guy just blows my mind though. I, you know, I, I hope that I can go that hard when I, when I'm that age, but, uh, you know, we'll see, but you know, you keep mentioning these other species of fish and I want to kind of go down that road because obviously we can talk the peacock bass thing, but there's a lot more, there's so much more offered by, by the lodge. Um, uh, and you're mentioning, and I'll, I'll slaughter the names of some of these fish. I apologize. You know, my, my redneck English, I'll say it wrong. I always thought it's Payara. Pajara. Yep, that's right. Um, now people have probably heard you say that a few times. Like, what is he talking about? What is that? And some, a lot of people will already know what it is, but to to describe what that species is, because I'll be frank, like in honest with you, man, if, or I should say when I come to Columbia, that I'll almost be more interested in that species than the peacock bass. That is a gnarly, wild, phenomenal animal right there. Tell me a little bit about that species. Yep. So Fajara, they're found usually in fast water. They're migratory. They look and fight a lot like salmon, and they're very, very prolific. It's one of the most abundant species of fish in our river systems, fortunately. So it's great, great fishing. They're very, very hard to get hooked. They have seven-inch fangs, so they're also referred to as vampire fish. And uh, they weren't very uh, known in the sport fishing world up until recently. And right now, I would say, you know, people are coming down just as excited about the Padara as they do about the Peacock. And uh, while they're fishing for them is very different from one to the other, they're both extremely, extremely fun. One of them lives in the fast water, the other one in the calmer water. So you can catch them both pretty much the same day fishing different areas of the rivers. And it's definitely one of the prime species of game fish and anywhere on Earth. They can grow to 35, 40 pounds. And they'll mm-hmm. give you a fight like crazy. They're very, very hard to land. Like tarpon, they get off really easily. So they're very, yeah. very, very hard to catch. But that being said, you usually get a lot of shots of them. So we have 100 padara caught in a day, days, which means you're getting 400 bites a day. Jeez. Well, that was one of my questions, too, because it seems like, you know, as I mentioned earlier, I, I'm, I am going to Guyana in September. And I know that's one of the species people will catch there. But it seems like the ones in Colombia are just so much bigger. Like it's like a different, like different monster there. It's a different species. Uh, okay. The ones in Vienna are called Hoplias uh, scomberoides, and the one in in the Orinoco Basin are called Hoplias aimara. Or, uh, oh, sorry, sorry, I did that wrong. I butchered it. Yeah, that's the wolf fish. I think you're ref- you're yeah. referring to. Yeah, uh, it's Hydraulicus scomberoides. The one in Guyana. And that species, if you, for instance, look at it in the pet trade, they're, they grow less fast and they tend to have a smaller max size. That being said, they do grow, you know, 25 pounds. And then the other species is the Hydraulicus armatus, which is the one in the Orinoco Basin. And they tend to be a little more robust and uh, just more of an abundant animal. They grow faster. And I think that's why they're more prolific in the Orinoco. But they're, yeah, they're two different species. Yeah, that's definitely, I, I think as far as, fre- in, in terms of fresh water, that's got to be one of the most unique, uniquely equipped species that there is. It's the, the the fangs that they have. And every time I see the photos of that, those two big fangs that stick up from that bottom jaw, I'm like, I get curious, like, what is the functionality of that? Like, what is the use? It's It, to, it almost looks like it would get in the way. They, uh, they use it for slashing and, and killing their prey. 
And uh, a lot of times, either they hold it in their mouth or they just injure it and come back around and grab it. Okay. And they, they lose those, those fangs when they're hunting. They actually have replacement fangs like sharks growing in the back of their mouth at all times. They're very unique. Yeah. That's it. <laughs> I saw some lodge down there. I, it may have been further to the south, somewhere somewhere further into South America, where it was like, if you catch one, they, you've got like, <laughs> I, saw, I don't remember where I saw it. The guy took the tooth of one and he got like one of the indigenous people to actually use the tooth to make a tattoo with the tooth. I was like, oh my gosh, like, I don't have any tattoos. But I was like, I would maybe be tempted to do that just because how badass it would be but um i look at a fish like that and it's hardware and think like like fishing for those the teeth are like the teeth are not necessarily cutting teeth are they i mean is that a hazard is it going to cut through your line with those teeth or is that more like for puncturing yeah they uh they cut through a 100 pound mono like it was buttered so we're oh, using wires. they they have those two fangs but they have also razor sharp teeth uh like little fangs that criss that crisscross all through their mouth but uh yeah they're more for stabbing but funny enough they cut through mono like nothing you know like the snapper that has giant fangs they don't cut through mono but these guys do that's interesting and i would think like i know with a lot of more toothy fish like that i would think that a single j on each like <laughs> replacing treble hooks with a single j might be more efficient and people yeah. doing that yeah. like mandatory single hook policy in our, oh, in our okay. special so. trips because on one hand it does increase the hookup ratio on the second hand if you have a treble you know attached to your hand and the fish on the other side it can be very dangerous very very dangerous for the the boat the boat crew uh since the pajara they they get on hook so easily they'll have lures flying through the air so it's just a lot safer to use the single hooks and it's actually a lot more effective so mm -hmm. you still lose bites you still lose a lot of bites but the ones that get hooked are tend to stay hooked. That's cool. Well, that's it. I guess that favors all parties. Then it's probably better for the fish. And then I would have thought, just looking at looking at the mouth, I was thinking to myself, like, man. Uh, and like I said, they've got them where I'm going in September. And I was thinking to myself, like, I think I might, in like, you know, want to use single hooks instead of treble hooks for for something like that. But, um, you know, I think a lot of people who think that area of Columbia or the, that environment, it's like, you know, you think peacock bass and, and you even think payara. But like, what are some of the other fish that maybe probably deserve a little more credit, but maybe people aren't even aware of that live down there? Like, what are some of the other so, species? Lure is probably my favorite species is the, the matrinxa. Turnover, uh, fish, riken is the genus of species of, of fish. They're, uh, Caught all through the Amazon basin, all the way in, into the Parana basin. They're called Jaturana in Bolivia. And those guys grow to about 10 pounds. They're extremely strong for their size, extremely aggressive omnivores. They eat fruits, berries, fish, lures, flies. And those guys are probably my favorite. I used a 10 pound test spinning gear for those. And they're extremely fun. The pocket fishing is also second to none. There's actually a lot of pocket, but very stealthy and hard to catch. So we've kind of figured them out a lot, and now we're catching a lot of pakus. While they're not, you know, crazy aggressive like the peacock that will die for a 10-inch rip roller, you know, if you can finesse them, they're extremely fun species to target. So paku is definitely one of the prime, prime game fish. And there's three different species of paku, the black paku, the white paku, which grow to about 40 pounds. 
and then the tambaki, which grows in excess of 100 pounds. Mm-hmm. So it's an extremely high sought-after trophy. And then uh, catfish, we have like two dozen species of catfish that are worth catching. Some of them, like the pure Eva, can grow over 350 pounds, the jawu over 150, and they're extremely fun. While we catch those on lures, they're generally on bait. Mm-hmm. And that's something that, you know, a lot of people we're starting to get more and more interest from people coming here to, to catfish. And uh, it's really fun because you never know what ate your bait until you caught it. So, yeah, that's kind of like, yeah, it's funny how bait fishing works like that. A lot of people will hate on bait fishing here in the States, but it's like, you know, it's a lot, it's really a lot exciting. of that. Yeah. I mean, when you drop a bait on the bottom, that's sort of part of the fun is that one, it affords you the opportunity to sit and, and, and be able to like, you know, bear witness to, what what other kind of I don't know nature is going on around you, but two you have no control over what is going to pick that bait up. It's sort of like anyone's guess. But um, one of the species y'all have that I think is so interesting because it's very similar in in appearance to a type of fish we have here is y'all have one. I think it's called a sardinata. It looks like it oh, like. That is a a really unique one, and I know a lot of people will mention that it looks like a small tarpon. We have a we have a fish here we have well it's a family of fish they're obviously they have to be related but we have these like american shad in but well all down the atlantic coast they look very similar they're just ours like silver and blue and smaller and it's one of the funnest kinds of fishing we have but yeah tell me about that yes. one fun man they're addicted to top water we catch them at, at the orinoco lodge and at the a PD Lodge. I've had quite a few clients that come down and then at the end of the trip, they're like, man, I love the peacock. I love the padara, but I'm coming back because of the sardinata. Yeah. They're extremely aggressive. They hit top water like crazy. We catch them on light gear, like a light fly rod, like seven weight or a 10 pound test spinning gear. And uh, they grow in excess of 15 pounds. We've caught them up to 18 pounds. And when you look at 10 pounder, they pull a lot harder than like a 14 pound padara. So they're extremely strong and they're very, very, very beautiful. They jump a lot. They're also they're also quite prolific and they're very aggressive. They do look a lot like tarpon. I think they're probably more closely related to the shad, the American shad. But mm-hmm. we're very, very lucky to have them, you know, growing to this size. Well, if they're getting that big, that's more than double the size of of our bigger shad. So and then our shad are kind of like a funny thing. It's they're they're not really an active predator at all. It's like they're only biting during their migratory run, it's kind of like a reactionary bite. So like the predatory, like behaviors of those things seem so interesting to me. That's a really cool species of fish there. But uh, yeah. So the other thing that I'm thinking though, I was like, I I mean, the fishing speaks for itself and like the photos that y'all have on your pages. I mean, dude, I could sit and scroll it all day long. It's like the stuff dreams are made of, but you know, that side of it is cool to me, but like a person like me, I'm, I'm very fascinated by these kinds of trips, just with the experience as a whole, like the things that kind of go beyond just the fish. And I've mentioned this on this podcast many times that like before I was an angler, I was just a kid obsessed with wildlife. And like, I mean, I was dreaming of going like South America or the Amazon or jungles from the time I was a little bitty kid. Are you still there, by the way? Yeah, I'm here. I just uh, had to answer a message real okay. quick. It's all good. I had to make sure. You never know what, what's going to happen. <laughs> um, 
but uh so like that's that interest is like still like way in my dna so it's like while the fishing is cool i'm more i'm very interested in like you know the the atmosphere around so i don't know man just just tell me about like if somebody was to go down there on to any of these lodges orinoco or Mapirier, sorry if i'm pronouncing these wrong <laughs> any of the ones that i don't know about for the freshwater side of things what is some of the wildlife that they may encounter from the birds to different mammals to reptiles and, and and whatever like what what could somebody realistically see when out on the water down there yeah so the the bird in colombia as i mentioned before is second to none so the birding while you're you're fishing here in the rivers is incredible you see a lot of species of macaw, a lot of species of kingfisher, a lot of species of t- wild turkeys and just, uh, you know, smaller, very interesting fi- uh, birds, parrots. Uh, t- uh, tapir, lowland tapir, which is generally very hard to see. We see quite a few of those. Every year we see a few jaguars um, and uh, we see a lot of capybara. We see peccary um, or, you know, wild boars. Um uh, we have white-tailed deer here. We see quite a few of that. Uh, the species of rodents that grow to about 30 pounds that are actually great eating. They're called uh, guagua or lapa. We see quite a bit of those as well. Hmm. Um, snakes, we see anacondas every year. We see some a few venomous vipers and coral snakes, although they're co- are not really that, that easy to run into. Uh, really cool species of tree boas, the emerald tree boa the rainbow boa um yeah the 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 snakes are are very unique the poisonous dart frogs there's several places while we're fishing that we can run into them uh in terms of crocodilians we can run into a bunch of different species which is actually quite unique the smooth fronted caiman the spectacle caiman the orinoco crocodile the american crocodile are all species that inhabit the areas that we're fishing and that we ran into, you know, every, every year or so. Um, but yeah, the wild fish Columbia, you know, it's, it's one company. We offer three different freshwater operations and the geography changes considerably from one to the other, as well as the pH levels and the wildlife that we see. But, um, there really is, is it's impossible to pick one of the trips. So usually people come back and, and fish several of the, of the different freshwater destinations, uh, because really they just complement each other. Yeah, that's awesome. <laughs> so, so on top of the fishing, obviously you have the opportunity. I'm, I would like strongly suggest people be bringing like cameras, like photography grade gear so as to not miss those things. But, uh, so there's that. And then it's like, just tell me about, I don't know, man, like, like the lodges themselves, like, like where are people sleeping, uh, I don't know, amenities wise. Is it, is it like a pretty comfortable setting is it, or it, is it very rustic or do you have the option to make it as hard as you want it to be? Like what is somebody's day-to-day living going to be at camp? When we started the company nine years ago, we were using very simple accommodations, very simple food, very simple tents. Uh, Right now, you know, 10 years down the line in our biggest operation, which is the Orinoco Lodge and then Mapiti Lodge, we've built uh, pretty comfortable uh, lodges with wooden cabins, uh, air cooling units, uh, design, uh, the menus are designed by chefs. Uh, so we've really up, up that a lot. Um, so we've, we made it comfortable while extremely, while still being extremely remote. Mm-hmm. Uh, 
Um, you have electricity all night, all run by generators. And then in our saltwater operation, we just opened up a brand new uh, luxury lodge that has eight luxury rooms, a pool. And that's, you know, a, a totally new level of comfort that we're, you know, equaling or surpassing the lodges in Central America in terms of accommodations. So really, that's one of the areas where we've progressed a lot during the years in terms of upgrading our service. The fishing is always going to be amazing, but or that potential for the amazing fishing is always going to be there. But now we've made sure that everything else is, you know, a dream vacation as well. That's awesome. Yeah. <laughs> oh, man. So you mentioned the saltwater thing and I, I've been wanting to go there. So it's like I at heart, I'm more of a freshwater guy. Um, uh, but I mean, now I'm living in Florida. It's like, there's, it's inescapable to want to like dip into the salt water and just in the spirit of being a more well-rounded angler who, who does more things and experiences more things. I think it's important to be able to do both, but you know, when I first thought fish Columbia, I've been following y'all for man, half a decade, at least I was thinking, okay, this is like a jungle expedition. This is jungle fishing. This is living in the jungles. This is very rustic you know, middle of, you know, middle of these dark water rivers type of fishing. Uh, but it was, it was probably within the last year or two that I started seeing y'all doing more the saltwater stuff. I, I would credit probably a lot mutual friend, uh, 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 Derek, Derek Olbridge, uh, Hanover fist, who <laughs> he was quick when he learned that me and you were going to talk, he was singing your praises. So, Shout out to him, but man, some of the photos I was seeing of that guy, um, obviously doing the freshwater thing, but then these giant Kubera snapper, the uh, just all, all the crazy different kinds of saltwater fish. I was like, holy cow! Like, is this a different thing? But tell me a little bit about about y'all saltwater experience. The lodge there is it is this Darien Lodge is is the name I've been seeing. Yep, Darien Lodge. We we um, opened up our, the new Darien Lodge, which is in the same location that we've been fishing on the Pacific for about nine years. We opened the lodge about a month ago, and it's just uh, more luxurious accommodations in the same location. Uh, so the Pacific fishery that we have is in the absolute opposite side of Colombia as the freshwater fishing. Okay. The freshwater, the eastern plains, and the saltwater fishing is in the North Pacific, so on the western northern edge of Colombia. And it's also jungle fishing in terms of that's it's the only place in the entire tropical eastern Pacific where there's no roads up or down or anywhere on the coastline. It's just jungle meeting sea. And it's the heart of the Darien Gap, which is one of the densest, most conserved jungles in the world and one of the rainiest places on Earth. So it's extremely biodiverse. The fact that there's no roads leading up to it not only means that you're in a very... Uh, exclusive place where very few people go, but it also means that there's no one killing the fish to, to sell it by by car or taking it out, you know, in any other way. So the area is very very conserved, and it's also jungle fishing while in the in the you know on the ocean. And then we have little rivers that we can go up on the Pacific coast for targeting smaller species of fish, you know, up to four pounds that are endemic to the area in freshwater. But you're also fishing pristine ecosystems that are having been, in, uh, you know, affected by humans that are in great in great shape with, you know, catch a lot of fish. But um, yeah, the, the the jungle fishing here in the coast it's in, it's insane because also the drop off not only is the is the the entire coastline the most conserved area in the eastern Pacific, but the drop off is the closest to the coastline 
in the entire tropical eastern Pacific. Just two and a half miles from shore, it drops down to 1,500, 2,000 feet. So that's unique in itself. So we're catching tuna, yellowfin tuna up to 200 pounds, uh, five minute run from the lodge. And this, and five minutes from there, we're catching uh, tarpon, kubera, snook. So it's very, very, very diverse, the fishery. So I guess the thing I was curious about, you said that there's basically, you know, I don't know, no paved roads, all of that. The first thing I'm wondering is like, how in the hell are you getting boats into the water? Like <laughs> where, where are you launching from? 250 miles from very southern uh, Pacific of Colombia, all the way up the coastline. Everything comes by barge. So like all the construction materials, all the gasoline, everything's by barge. So it's obviously very expensive to operate, very logistically complicated. But that's for me is the beauty of it. You know, the more remote, that's why I do it, you know. So I like going the most remote I can. Well, I'm sure having the engineering mindset, you probably have the right amount of analytical uh, I don't know, vision for that kind of thing. But um, yeah, just tell me th- some of the different like species that y'all are specializing in. I have them, I have each listed down that I that I that I see that kind of stick out. But like you mentioned snook. And I was curious, like, are these the same snook we have here in Florida, or do y'all have like the black snook that I've seen yeah. or some in the Pacific Ocean we have the black and the white snook that grow both over fifty pounds and it's a different mm-hmm. species. We have tarpon that actually cross through the Panama Canal and have established populations, and we've caught them huge, over 250 pounds. Uh, we catch a lot of sailfish, a lot of blue marlin, black marlin, some of the biggest mahi-mahi on earth, kubera snapper, roosterfish, uh, almacote jacks, broomtail grouper, warsaw grouper, barrelfish, um, wahoo, uh, Spanish mackerel, jack creval, huge bluefin trevally mullet snapper there's really just uh, an endless amount of, of species that we target yellowfin tuna big eye tuna jack tuna yeah that's cool it's well those warsaw groupers is that that's one that's always interested me that that, that is just a i imagine is that more of like a deep water species there yeah. war- taking those from 400 to 800 feet of water now, is there an option to release those? Because like all the photos, they got the big oh. buggy eyes, and no, no, they all die. So they do all you put? Pl- they make it to the surface because they they uh once they come up two or three hundred feet, then slowly mm-hmm. the air inside of them expands, and once they start to expand, they start to float up really fast. And once the the faster they come up, the more they expand. So by the time they make it to the surface, all their internal organs have exploded. Yeah, because that's one of those ones where, like, on the top end, like, they're real, like, upper end sized specimens are mind blowing how big they can get. I mean, they're what, like, a 500 pound fish plus? I think 350 or so, 400 pounds, I think, that world record. We've caught them uh, up to 50 pounds only, but we're just starting to get more and more into this deep dropping game. Mm -hmm. So there really wasn't any, any fishing of any sort, any recreational sport fishing on the whole Pacific coast of Colombia up until 10 years ago. And we're just kind of learning as we go, uh, traveling other places, learning from there, implementing it here, bringing captains from abroad. But uh, yeah, it's just kind of like untouched, uncharted waters. What well, seems to be like the real breadwinner there with the saltwater fish? Is there is there one that seems to be like the main attraction? No, I would say uh, last year we caught the biggest mahi-mahi anywhere on earth and way more than anywhere else. So that was kind of a big draw. Mm. The year 
before we caught a tarpon that was reeled in by several people. So it didn't count as a world record. There would have been around the all tackle world record. That definitely brought in a lot of people down. Um, so the Kubera snapper on top water, there's only a few places on earth you can do that. So a lot of people come down for that. The endemic species of the whole, the Eastern tropical Pacifics, like the rooster fish, the Kubera, the mola snapper, bringing in a lot of people, but, uh, the tuna popping as well. We have some of the best tuna fishing on earth. So a lot of people come for popping, but I would say, no, it's very, very diverse. The fishing we do, a lot of people come down looking for different species. Yeah. That Kubera fishing, the, the topwater Kubera videos and photos y'all have that that's probably the one for me it's kind of like the running joke of this show though is like <laughs> i feel you know only a, you know 20 episodes into this thing so far but uh i don't know time and time again i mentioned that i i get terribly seasick it's like the big joke about me like i i've tried everything to get around it i'm like man i want to make that trip but how can i get around the seasickness but it's like dude like the cabaras the photos that y'all have of those things, I'm like, I'm just going to, I got to figure something out because that is an experience I've got to get under my so belt. But part of the Pacific ocean, we, we don't ever really have very rough seas. We can fish all year round. It's okay. usually like, and uh, you know, there's a lot of seasickness pills that will yeah. <laughs> for you, but yeah, the, one of the unique places about this fishery is that, you know, there's great fishing for yellowfin, for instance, off South Africa. But you get there and there's a 50% chance that it's going to be too rough and you can't go fishing. That's never a thing here. Well, that's good news. And that, that makes me feel a little bit better. I think I'm being a little hard on it. I like jazz it up, make it sound like a bigger problem than it really is. But uh, <laughs> it's like I had enough bad experiences that I'm like, oh, shit, I am not going back out there. But, you know, I don't want to miss out on on uh, some of these different kind of fish. It's like, you know, everybody's got like their bucket list fish. You know what I mean? Like everybody's got like, oh, these are like the ones I want to catch. And then like saltwater, that's definitely one of them. Rooster fish is a big one for me. Um, I'd like to do that from shore. I'd like to get one of those from. I know that there's some opportunities in some areas to to do the land based. Now, I guess that's another question. Do y'all have opportunities to do shore fishing for saltwater? Is that really part of the deal? Like we do. It's just uh, you have to swim from the boat to the beaches, which we do that sometimes. Uh, yeah. As I mentioned, before, no roads at all. So all these beaches are 100% conserved. There's no one throwing lures or bait off the beaches. It's unfished. So we do have success doing it. We just have to, you know, find the right kind of person who's willing to swim 200 feet to get yeah. to the beach. But a lot of people do it. So David, uh, I actually have 2% battery. So I think we should wrap it up. Yeah, before I I uh, jump out of the call, I yeah, no up. problem. I think I was kind of winding down anyway, but uh, but for sure, well, we'll start to close out then. But uh, Alberto, man, you 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 run like basically, you're like the deliverer of dreams. You know what I mean? Fish Columbia, I think is man, it's it's got to be one of the top places worldwide that that I want to visit, and other people should too. And, you know, we've highlighted, obviously, the opportunities that people have to go there and experience something unique in freshwater and in saltwater. But the people that are listening who would want to go and see this themselves, whether it be a, a YouTube channel or a place where they can see videos, a website, Instagram accounts, what are some of the Instagram handles, YouTube? Like, where can they go to find this stuff? So you can find us on Instagram at, uh, at Fish Columbia or at Darien Lodge. We also opened up one for the Orinoco Lodge, which would be at Orinoco Lodge. And then we also have a YouTube channel. We have it's, uh, All Fish Columbia. And uh, yeah, we post a lot of very cool uh, uh, fishing videos. We have a full-time videographer, producer, 
it's constantly uh, producing new videos and pictures, which is uh, it's very, very fun Instagram to follow. If you're not following us yet, you should definitely give it a check. Oh, a thousand percent. I, and I'll throw that up here. I urge anybody to go check it out. And who knows, maybe in the next two years, three years, I'll get lucky and have some photos on there of myself because that's a trip that's going to 100% happen. But uh, awesome. excuse me, Alberto, I appreciate your time. You're a busy man running an incredible business. Um, appreciate you coming on here, dude. I'm going to let you get to it. David, thank you so much for the opportunity. I look forward to having you down here. All right, man. Have a good one. You too. Talk to you soon. Yep. Thank you for listening to Boundless Pursuit. Tune in each week as we bring stories and insight from uniquely talented anglers and outdoorsmen. And if you enjoyed this show, I want to hear from you. Be sure to leave a five-star review as this is going to drive the growth and exposure of this show. And if you have feedback or guest suggestions, I would love to hear from you. And you can reach me at boundlesspursuitfishing at gmail.com. For all other collections of media and contact information, please visit www.boundless-pursuit.com.
Thank you for listening to Boundless Pursuit. Tune in each week as we bring stories and insight from uniquely talented anglers and outdoorsmen. And if you enjoyed this show, I want to hear from you. Be sure to leave a five-star review as this is going to drive the growth and exposure of this show. And if you have feedback or guest suggestions, I would love to hear from you. And you can reach me at boundlesspursuitfishing at gmail.com. For all other collections of media and contact information, please visit www.boundless-pursuit.com. 